Hi guys, welcome back to OTTB on Tap. Today is going to be our very first official episode from a question that we queried the Facebook group OTTB Market using answers that you guys provided us sort of condensed down to a list. And we're just going to talk about these in sort of a very conversational way today and give you our feeling about some of your very interesting answers. The question was, what is the one thing you wish you knew before buying your first OTTB? Emily, you want to take it first? You know, I thought about this a little bit, and I think that the biggest thing that you need to decide, and this actually is more about you as a person than the horse, but you need to think about your tolerance for risk. When you say risk, like, like, what do you mean exactly? I guess I mean your buying style and what you're buying and how much you're spending. Like, are you the type that are going to be okay if you purchase a horse sight unseen and maybe there's something slightly different about it than you thought? Maybe something, you know, maybe it photographed a little bit different. Maybe it's slightly different in size. You know, there's a risk that... You might not like riding it. There's a risk with all horses. There's a risk that I mean, it could get injured on the trailer on its way to you. So there's a lot of things there. And then there's a lot of bigger issues that we'll delve into here. But I think that learning your personal kind of style for how to deal with risk and what you're comfortable with ahead of time. How do you feel like the representation of known vices plays into that risk? Well, vices are a little bit tricky. I think it varies state to state, but there are certain vices that must be disclosed by the seller, depending upon what your state you're in. And the vice can be cribbing, weaving, or stall walking, generally speaking. But I certainly have known horses that will do those things in one environment and not another. So it can get very tricky When you ask a seller, does it have any vices? And they say no. And then the horse ships to you. And the first thing it does is start cribbing. You go back to them and they say, oh, it never cribbed with me. And you're like, well, that's not true because it's like cribbing my whole barn down. But I have actually seen that personally happen. I've had horses that will weave in one scenario or one stall or one barn. And then you take them in a different scenario, different barn. And they've never done it. So... That can definitely be tricky, but it's something that you need to take into consideration for sure if you're boarding and making sure that your boarding facility can accommodate a fresh off the track thoroughbred and all of the things that may or may not come with it. For me, I think we were talking about this a little bit off mic, but for me, it would be, I would, you know, I was riding my whole life. I'd always, always been pretty horse crazy, could never have a horse of my own. And I didn't get my first horse until I was 32 years old. And it was a four-year-old, unraced, uh, but track trained off the track thoroughbred. And so I would answer this question that, like, you don't know what you don't know. And what I mean by that was that I've always been somebody who is so interested in learning and researching and and wanting to know how to do everything kind of the right way and the proper way. 
And I was lucky enough to be in an environment and surrounded by horse people that really and truly held my hand for the first year or two of owning that horse. Now, he was particularly easy, and he had a very good brain, even though he hadn't officially raced. His track trainer described him as, quote, lazy like his son-in-law. And uh, yeah, he was pretty, pretty lazy. Um, You know, but at the same time, I, he made me really and truly learn. And some examples of that are, he had some of the worst feet. And I hesitate to even say anything about feet right now, because that's just a rabbit hole that we're going to probably go in and out of throughout this podcast's life. Um, But I learned how to deal with a horse that has thin soles. I learned how to manage nutritionally a horse that has bad feet. Um, I learned how to work with a farrier very closely to ask the right questions and to allow them to explain their processes to me so I could see the long-term picture in the horse's hoof care. Um. Oh my God. Yes. (laughs) With this particular horse, he was just constantly springing shoes. And anytime I had a plan to do anything, For example, going cross-country schooling, it was like he read my Facebook post the night before and got a harebrained idea that like, oh, I'm going to show her. We'd get out on the cross-country course a mile and a half from the trailer. He'd jump one jump and spring a shoe. And he wouldn't pull it all the way off, but he couldn't also put his foot down. (laughs) And he did that multiple times. One time, including when the farrier was actually leaving the driveway after just having put shoes on him. (laughs) So in a lot of ways, I mean, I learned everything I didn't know about hooves that year. And yes, that applies to off-the-track thoroughbreds, but it also applies to, I think, any horse that you get. I will admit that I am a much better horse person for all of the things that this horse had, what some people might consider a deficit in sort of today's opinions. But he was also really fun and nice and easy and a really good first horse for me. Um, So now we're going to dip into some of the answers from our Facebook post. And we had 320 comments as of, but I've sort of condensed them down. So if there were repeats, I just sort of generalized a little bit. We're not trying to embarrass anybody or shout out anyone's name. So if you listen to this podcast and you go, oh, that was my answer. We're not trying to um, embarrass anybody or call anybody out. This is, this is going to be a community for you guys as well as for us. So first question, first answer. First answer is how expensive they'd be to feed. There were a lot of comments here about cost of feeding their caloric needs, you know, keeping weight on them. A lot of things such as that. Do you disagree? I think it's tricky. I think that like on a really broad level, I think that, you know, they're a specific type of athlete at the track and they're being fed and given things to support that lifestyle, which when they come home from the track, there's generally a period of their body sort of going through the experience of reacting to a very different environment and a different type of feeding. I mean, That transition can be tough on some of them, but 
I've known plenty of easy keeping. In fact, the horse I was just talking about with the, <laughs> with the feet, he was, I mean, he was fat on air, you know, did he come that way? No, but did I have to like get myself into debt? Not really either. It just was a matter of time, patience, and also realizing that like body condition has a lot to do with their muscling and their fitness level and not just about how much they're eating. I would say to chime in here, having run a stable with probably over 20 off-track thoroughbreds and then other types of horses as well. I think that overall, the OTTBs needed a lot more hay, particularly in winter. Yeah. Um, they did better with hay, higher quality hay. We would supplement alfalfa for them, whereas some of the other breeds of horses didn't necessarily need, need that. And they needed a higher quality grain with a higher fat content. Now, that's not all. And I think that's something to keep in mind as we go through all of these questions is that, and it's something when we were looking through the answers on the group page, is that invariably somebody would say something like this, and then there'd be 10 people saying, well, I, I, mine, you know, existed on air. Well, of all the thousands of thoroughbreds in the country, I would argue that in general, they are more expensive to feed and maintain weight on, particularly in that kind of straight off the track transition where their body is changing, their routine is changing, and that like first full year. After that, they probably become much closer to what your average horse in the country would cost to feed, but not always. That's tricky. Um, yeah. One of the horses that I bought off the backside at Parks was in a wonderful program with a fantastic trainer who we'd worked with previously. He was in great condition when we got him. However, she couldn't get him to really eat hay at the track, and he was getting something like 16 quarts of very high octane feed twice a day. And I knew that it was going to be a shock for him to transition. And that's the thing is that, you know, say you're buying a horse from like a reseller, they might not really know what the horse was eating at the track. When you buy a horse direct from the trainer or you have the luxury of getting on the backside, you have a little more time to explore those ideas. So it's all a bit of a a guessing game and again, kind of doing your research and finding out what works for people that you know and making sure that your horse is in an environment where your barn manager isn't just going to throw it what everyone else is getting. It's also regional, you know, in terms of where you live in the United States. It can be much tougher in states where hay is extremely, I mean, it's expensive everywhere, but I know that there are certain areas of the U.S. where if you were to try and get a good quality Timothy or an alfalfa or something like that, it would just be extraordinarily expensive versus if you live in the Northeast or in Kentucky or something like that, it's probably st- still expensive, but not as astronomical. So, you know, your quarter horse or something like that might be able to get by on, on a lesser quality hay that in that area is easier to acquire. So something to keep in mind there, too. We're very fortunate. We're in the Northeast of the U.S. in Pennsylvania where we have access to great pastures. Yeah. Our answer number two, I think, is it was actually a pretty common answer, was that that they would want many, many more of them. And 
I think we can both attest to the fact that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There were a lot of comments of, you know, they're like potato chips. You get one, you need more. And I mean, I had that experience when I was searching for my first one once I got back from my hiatus from my original riding. And I went to the track and saw probably 10 horses or so and didn't really love any of them. Last horse of the day comes out of the barn and my jaw just dropped to the floor. And the trainer said, well, I'm going to run him one more time. And I was like, okay. And then he's like, I'll call you when I'm right when he's done. Well, in the time between that and him calling me, I bought a different horse. But when the call came from the trainer, you can sure bet I was buying that horse. And suddenly I had two. It's as easy as that. (laughs) And there were definitely times when we worked together and bought horses off the track all over sort of the eastern seaboard and we'd say okay okay we just sold two today let's just take a break (laughs) and then i'd get on the phone with a trainer on my hour drive home to philly and go i'm really sorry but i just bought this really cute gray gelding or whatever and it's true they're they're kind of addicting and they they give back a lot so i think that's one of the attributes that makes people like one another and another so another so Yes, agreed. They're very genuine, and when you get a good one, there's nothing like it. It's also like Christmas morning when you get a new one off the track. (laughs) Yeah. It's like unwrapping a present. You get to see it move, it walks off the trailer, and a lot of times you're just like, wow, okay. There's a real athlete standing in front of you. Yeah, especially buying sight unseen. (laughs) Sometimes you you wire the money or... (laughs) go to Walmart and send the money or a gas station or however you have to. And, or you buy a horse in the middle of the night and then you wake up and you're like, Oh gosh, what did I do? What did I buy? What's it going to look like when it gets here? Is it really going to be that size? Is it going to, you know, and then hopefully it steps off the van and you're just like, wow. Uh, What do you think about answer number three, not doing it sooner? So I guess I would say, So I guess I would say I'd be interested in why it hadn't been done sooner. Is it because of misconceptions about thoroughbreds? Is it because of just being afraid to buy a horse in general? You know, I I do think in certain disciplines in particular, there are kind of stereotypes against thoroughbreds. Um, And that might be what this person was hinting at here. But it seems like they were happy that they did it. How about you? I mean, for me, it was always a sort of financial thing. But then once I was kind of settled in that age in my life where, you know, my life had a little bit more predictability, it made sense. And so, yeah, I mean, I've wanted a horse since I was four years old. I just had to wait till I was 32 for it to actually happen, you know? Yeah, sometimes definitely financial, sometimes overthinking everything that can go wrong. Yeah, it just gets in the way. Gets in the way, but, you know. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It goes back to being your, you know, comfort level with risk. Right. This answer, I think, is um, interesting and probably a little bit controversial. This person said that they um, wish that they knew that they were going to have to get all new tack. Now, we ran a resale business together, and we were lucky in the sense that 
we kind of made a lot of stuff work and we weren't necessarily in a position to like get all new tack for every horse. Obviously you're, you're not going to put an ill fitting saddle on a horse or, you know, whatever. I was like, but your standard loose ring snaffle with a simple bridle, maybe a flash and a decently fitting saddle. And, and then you kind of wait until their bodies change and grow and they build some top line and, and you get to understand what their future body is going to look like. With my 17 hand thoroughbred, I got him when he was four and he was just all sharp angles and you could tell there was an incredible looking horse in there, but I knew he was going to be very slow to mature physically and I didn't buy him his own saddle until he was about six and a half years old. So yeah, you might have to buy new. I don't think they're that complicated. Yeah, I guess, you know, I think this is very much a hot button issue with probably a lot of people. I know that saddle fit is exceptionally important, obviously. I think some horses are a little bit of that princess in the pea situation whereby they need that very, very um, super well-fitting saddle in order to perform at their best. And I would never discourage somebody that has the means from... Absolutely. You know, from doing that, but I think there has been a trend of like you need to have the you know five or six thousand dollar saddle. You need to have the three or four hundred dollar ergonomic bridle. You need to have this two hundred dollar bit, and maybe you can get by without that. Maybe you can go to the secondhand shop and and try to find stuff that works for now, and invest that money in a trainer and lessons and you know fees. All the other stuff that. might be more important yeah 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 Yeah. you know i mean definitely open to challenge on that i think there's going to be a lot of people that say otherwise but in my experience with a lot of thoroughbreds most of them are okay with tack that fits kind of you know off the rack and with some like minor customization that you can i don't have any experience with this next answer but i can sort of relate it to something that we had experienced from buying straight from the track this person said that shopping the last books of the Keeneland sales can get you a really nice horse at a bargain price. And I can only relate to that in the sense that like when the meets close at various racetracks, you can often find horses that are eagerly trying to get off the track because the trainers are closing down for the winter. And so if you're a little savvy and you don't mind the risk, you could get something from Finger Lakes or another track that's closing down and the trainer's just desperate to get the horses off the track. So, so yeah, for sure. If you pay attention to when the meets end, that is a great time to look or just before. This next one's a little controversial and I'm curious to see what our, both of our opinions are about this, but it's, whether or not your horse really needs letdown after its career at the track. What do you think? Again, I think this goes to the not all thoroughbreds are the same. And also the environments in which they're entering are all vastly different. And as are the people handling them. So it's really hard to say yes or no. And to to come across with this, like, you know, off-track thoroughbreds or or thoroughbreds are used to being in work, you know, 
five, six, seven days a week, or they work for X amount a day. They had, I do know that they have a very, very regimented schedule on the track. They get fed at a very certain time. You know, they get ridden at a certain time for a certain length of time. They have a very specific, you know, process throughout the day and they thrive on that routine. So bringing one home straight off the track can be a little exciting, um, depending upon the horse and the training it's had and, and what barn it's coming from. Things like transitioning a horse to turnout that hasn't been used to it being turned out with other horses and then also diet changes farrier changes and sometimes these are colts that need to be gelded so you have to think about that and then also just their muscling and their body and the going from the work that they're doing at the track where they have an exercise rider that weighs x amount and then a jockey that weighs you know a little over 100 pounds i know some exercise riders are larger but going to perhaps a larger rider, all of those things, I think, can kind of wrap up into what you might want to call letdown. I do know that there is a school of thought where you should take that horse, pull its shoes off and chuck it in the field for a year to let it learn to be a horse. And that might work for some horses in some situations. But a lot of people are taking a horse from the track to a boarding barn. And suddenly it's on group turnout in a 10 acre field. Um, that could be a lot of shock to the system. So just I think there needs to be, I don't know if the term is education or just kind of a stepped process of, you know, if you have access to a small paddock, maybe turn it out there with some really good quality hay for a couple of hours. Gradually turn it out with, um, you know, one or two horses that are, you know, not combative, <laughs> the lower on the totem pole, let it make some friends. A lot of them then become very, very, very attached to those friends. So there's a lot to deal with there. I know that was kind of a complex answer to this, but I feel like it's definitely case by case. And it depends upon who bought the horse, who's taking care of it and their experience level on top of the horse's individual personality. And I think another thing to think about is, you know, when you get a horse off the track, let's just say you buy it right off the track, like off the backside, you know, just because a horse is at the track doesn't mean it's necessarily doing anything. Um, there are horses that maybe the trainer has a block of stalls and they've got two horses that aren't really running. So those horses aren't even getting their daily conditioning in. Maybe they're going on the walker. That's a little bit different than a horse who just ran a couple of days ago. And so you don't often know that information. I mean, you can access some of that information, but it's just important to realize that they're just not all going to react the same way. And I think that one thing I would say about the whole letdown turnout process is that I think some people would be really surprised to know that like thoroughbreds can get a little beat up and turn out like they're not used to like going out with a group of horses and, and, you know, yes, when they were yearlings, of course, I was like, but you know, they, maybe they've been to the track for six years. Like they're not necessarily getting that kind of lifestyle. And there's just a lot to consider. And I think you, you're putting the horse first and you're thinking about, you know, the decisions they're going to make or the ones they're going to make poorly, then you can set them up for success down the road for sure. I think too, it's, Maybe an advantage to the buyer 
that is at a boarding barn and is not experienced with one that is coming straight from the backside of the track to them is a case for shopping with a reputable reseller. Yeah. Somebody that has access to smaller paddocks. Has done some of that process for you. started the process. You know, I think that the horses can still change greatly after that, but it is definite a definite advantage. And you get to kind of find out a little bit more about the horse's personality sometimes. Right. Like I know from my experience, like it's, it's interesting how sometimes like the ones that can be really kind of hot and a little bit bargy on the ground are just beautiful and quiet to ride and vice versa. Yeah. I'll, I'll never forget one time going to ride one of Emily's horses. And she said, well, you can ride this one because he's, he's real quiet and you know, he was a little bargy on the ground and uh, and I went out to a field and she had to run back to the barn or something to get a piece of tack or something or put her horse away. And this horse just started bucking with me. <laughs> and when she came back out to the field, I was just standing on the ground. She's like, what happened? I was like, I don't know. But he just started bucking. He never bucked before <laughs> but I don't or know, after that. <laughs> and I don't know if it was because she took his best friend away and we were all the way out in the field. But it's just one of those funny things where, you know... I think the more you can find out about them as someone who might be a timid buyer, the better. It's only going to help you in the long run. Yeah. The next answer, I think, is really thoughtful. And I'm a big fan of this. The response was kind of talking about maybe not riding the horse right away, but sort of getting some groundwork and manners will really pay off down the road and how their body and mind develop. As I've gotten older, I've gotten more and more into the idea of connecting with a horse in this way. And I think it's really been very useful for my journey with horses. I very much enjoy groundwork. I also very much enjoy a horse that respects me on the ground. I'm not a very tall person. And one of the best pieces of advice that Emily ever gave me when I was working for her was to stop being small. And really what she meant by that was... The horse knows if you think you're small, if you're acting small. And it changed my mindset and the way that I dealt with horses on the ground. And I would think now that I can safely handle most anything with some confidence because of some of the stuff that I learned how to do on the ground and some of the expectations I had of the horse on the ground. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with that. I think I, too, as I have gotten older, tend to probably look into this more and I've learned more. I do think that there are different kind of schools of thought within groundwork and what you're trying to accomplish. But I think as long as you are trying to accomplish a better relationship with your horse and eventually riding it, I think that that there's nothing wrong with that at all. And I think it can only benefit. Yeah. And there's a lot to be said for, you know, this idea that like if a horse isn't respecting you on the ground, it's probably not going to respect you under saddle. It's not always the case. Yeah, I don't know about that. It's not always the case, <laughs> but, but it's definitely a good way to develop that relationship. And, yeah. you know, if you do decide or maybe the horse has an injury and it can't get turned out or it can't get ridden for a period of time during this, what we call, quote unquote, let down time, this is something you can still do with it that will then improve your relationship for when you are actually riding it down the road. For sure. And if you do get to the point where and we've experienced this with selling horses and then, you know, they hurt themselves on the trailer before they get to the new farm. And then, you know, the horse that they bought is not the horse that they took home now because now it's going to have to be on stall rest for a couple of weeks. Like it's very important to 
have somebody around you that maybe knows a little more, is maybe a little more confident so that you don't get into a bad relationship with the horse. Yeah. Okay, our next answer. This one had multiple, multiple different variations to it, but came up quite frequently. And it is talking about hooves and their quality and shoeing practices. And should we talk about the barefoot thing and wrap that into this? I don't know if we really want to go there just yet. <laughs> okay, let's just talk about, about hooves in general and, and the racehorse. So Neve has talked a little bit earlier about her struggles with uh, her first horse and his hooves and how much she learned from that. And I think, number one, racehorses do have a reputation for having bad feet. Number two, I think that there's a lot of factors that go into that, and that does not necessarily mean that the horse will have bad feet forever. Yes. Is there maybe one or two out there that might? Maybe. But there are a lot of things that you can do um, when you buy an off-track thoroughbred. And it, it also is something to look at when you are purchasing the horse and thinking about what your purpose is and what your goals are. If your goal is to resell the horse immediately or to immediately start riding and competing it, then you're probably going to want to get a horse with the best current hoof quality that you can, meaning that it is shod very well, it is shod with heels, uh, with, and it has equal what would you call it? Foot access ratio. Yeah. You know, a lot of racehorses have one heel that's very low with a long toe and one heel that's higher and the, the hoof is more upright. Not necessarily a club foot, but this high low syndrome can really kind of wreak havoc on you for a little while while your farrier tries to sort the feet out. But number one, a good farrier um, should be able to, over time, make the improvements that you need for the horse to have good feet. What do you think, Neve? Yeah, I mean, I think when you're looking at a still photo of a horse or a horse in front of you, I mean, you can, you know, look all the way around the horse, look at the angle. You, you should really and truly know what a good foot looks like. And you can't compare a thoroughbred foot shape, angles, and all of that to really any other breed. They're just, they are a different foot, I think. And they're um, shod differently. They're at shod the track. differently at the track. And so you need to educate yourself to know, you know, does this foot look like in a little bit of time, you know, the toe could get pulled back a little bit, that the heels can contract a little bit. And, you know, you can pick up the foot, you can look at the sole quality, you can, you know, get an idea of, you know, maybe how the walls feel and, and and things like that. But if I were a first time buyer now, I would probably have a conversation with my farrier with the first horse that I spoke about. It took about a full year for him to grow a really nice quality foot. And I think the biggest lesson with feet is that most everything can kind of come around um, with some exceptions and that patience is definitely your friend in a situation like that. I actually would pull his shoes when the ground was really soft in the winter and use boots to ride him and paper chased him and did all kinds of different things with him just so that I could allow him a little more time to grow a little more foot 
And I think that patience is probably definitely the biggest contributing factor there. The other thing I would say here is if you're currently in a barn where you don't really interact with your farrier, which is lovely if you have a barn that sets up your farrier appointments, holds the horse for you or, or gets the horse for you and you just write the check, you may want to see if you can schedule your time with your farrier before you buy a horse off the track and talk to them about if they have experience with horses, shoeing horses that have come off the track. Oh, yeah. And um, what their advice would be, because there is a great variety in farriers and it's better to have one that has transitioned a thoroughbred before than to have it be a learning experience for them. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Definitely. And sometimes, you know, if you do decide to vet a a horse, a lot of vets are pretty darn savvy in terms of hoof care and, and, but you don't learn how to ask the right questions without having those conversations with your farrier, doing your research, asking people that you trust and know around you. And it is something that like, during your pre-purchase exam, your vet can help point you in the right direction and may even want your farrier to be present to talk about the horse's hoof quality. So, And potentially x-ray. Yeah. Okay. All right, next one. That they will continue to grow. <laughs> Sometimes a lot. Now, I have to say, this has never worked for me. <laughs> I'm very tall. And... I think when I first got back into horses, the first horse I bought was only three and he was quite butt high. And we're like, well, he'll just breeze just in a growth spurt. He'll grow. Guess what? He didn't. (laughs) (laughs) And he stayed that shape. So I personally have not had the experience of buying one and then having it grow rapidly. I have heard the stories. And keep in mind, if you're buying something that raced if it's two, three, or four years old, it can definitely have a couple more years left to grow. And it will definitely fill out. So you can kind of factor that in, too. Yeah. I will say that with my last thoroughbred, who, when I sold him, he was 17 hands. Well, at least he was the last time I measured him because I stopped measuring him. I want to say he was 16-2 when we got him, which doesn't sound like a big difference. <laughs> but I'm five foot six, and he was very narrow and very angular when I first got him. And when I sold him, he was 1,300 pounds of solid muscle with a massive top line. And you felt like you were on top of the world when you were on them. So <laughs> there's no guarantees with that. Yeah, I guess that's another way to put it. You know, if you buy something that's 15.3 and you're like, it'll grow to 16.1, well, it might. And it, it should, depending on its age. But you can also look at the parents. And if you know how big they were, that should help kind of figure out how tall the horse should be when it finishes. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I feel like the next answer (laughs) came from a lot of different directions and I just kind of condensed it down to a very simple sentence, but this is that they can be walking vet bills. And I would just like to say that that is every horse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think, Every horse has the potential to be a giant vet bill. I think that it kind of maybe comes from your frame of reference and, you know, at what phase of like post track you're getting the horse. Have I had 
off-track thoroughbreds that constantly get injured? Yes. Have I had non-off-track thoroughbreds that constantly get injured? Also, yes. But keep in mind that if you take one that hasn't been turned out and straight from the track and you chuck it in a giant field with 10 other horses, well, guess what? It's going to probably get beat up. It's probably going to run the fence. It might run through the fence. It might jump the fence. It's probably going to lose <laughs> its shoes. It might step on a clip, you know, and then it might colic because it's so upset that this happened to it. <laughs> so I think that has to be taken with a grain of salt. Um, I don't know if there's ever been a study statistically looking at breeds of horses and seeing which ones cause the highest vet bills. That I would be curious to see. <laughs> would be curious. Yeah. If anybody has any metrics on that, please reach out to us. Yeah, I would be very interested in that. Now, if we're talking now, that's purely injury that I'm talking about or like, you know, a stress induced colic. If we're talking about things like ulcers or other kind of issues that are common in thoroughbreds, then that might be a higher instance than other types of horses. Again, I don't have any data on that. And one thing that I'll just add here is that, again, and maybe I'm sounding like I'm going on and on about this, but that I think that um, learning about medical care, how to treat nicks, cuts, basic, like little things that pop up so that you are not having to call the vet every five seconds for stuff. Having your horse in an environment where your barn manager is the smartest person in the room and not one of the boarders. You know, you just need to have... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was in a barn in South Jersey where I knew more than anybody at the barn, and it made me feel very, very, like, worried that, you know, and my horse actually got cast at that barn, and nobody knew, and nobody knew how to recognize the signs, and that was very stressful, and I swore I'd never put myself in a situation like that. Like, I like knowing that I can go to the person in charge and say, please look at this leg for me. What do you think we should do? Should I sweat it overnight and see in the morning, et cetera, et cetera. I was lucky to work with you, who has your HA from Pony Club. Yeah. And basically, when the weather was bad or we had time in between things, would show me how to bandage things, how to care for my horse in a lot of ways that I had never been taught in my entire life. And I think this, for me, comes back to the fact that I know a lot of horse people who have owned horses their entire life and don't know enough about actual horse care and that's not to insult anything about them as a rider or somebody who loves horses it's just something that you can sort of see that delineation amongst people sometimes and it it always surprises me a little bit so yeah yeah I think you can save a lot of money with just knowing how to properly apply standing wraps and wound care and knowing when not to panic Yeah. You know, that can be hard as like a new horse owner and knowing that, you know, again, we're not giving any veterinary advice out or anything like that, but just knowing what looks normal, like knowing what your horse's legs should feel like, knowing how to feel for heat or a digital pulse or, you know, just some basic stuff so that you're not always going to 100 every time, you know, your horse comes in a little, little off. A little lumpy leg. A little lumpy leg. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, this plays very nicely into our next answer, which is the subject of ulcers. Oof. And somebody suggested factoring that into the purchase price and letdown time, which I thought was an interesting idea. I think idea. that's, yeah. Um, if you haven't dealt with ulcers, you will. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you know, again, I'm not a vet, but from what I, I think I know, when you have a horse that's on a super high grain diet without access to grass, as much, most thoroughbreds at the track are, that can be a recipe for ulcers. Also stress and being in that environment with that type of, you know, usually it's a high octane sweet feed and not a lot of fresh grass. So I think it is definitely a good idea to consider ulcer treatment into your plan with your horse. And yeah, I think the other thing to remember is that like horses don't just get ulcers from like negative sources of stress, like in the sense that like, think about it in like a human sort of way. Like I'm a highly anxious person and my anxiety can be paired to be being happy, excited about something and also worried, excited. So sometimes when a horse is like a horse that travels a lot and really loves to go out there and compete, sometimes that excitement, which is not the same as worry can create those conditions in which ulcers can end up popping up and that you might have a horse who's totally fine when he's just right off the track, but then you start putting it into work, you start taking it places, you start asking it to do a couple things, and maybe it internalizes its worry a little bit, and you start noticing some differences in its personality. You know, maybe it starts getting a little hot or spooky, and that's uncharacteristic for the horse. And knowing how to sort of look for the signs of ulcers, and then knowing how to go about treating them is really important. And as someone who experienced this with one of my previous horses, he acted strange for a week. I had him scoped at New Bolton, which we're so lucky to live right down the road from New Bolton Center. And and it turned out he had pretty bad ulcers and he was just a very stoic, sweet horse that tried really hard. And luckily he was insured. And my insurance very graciously covered the treatment, but I, it was all out of pocket. And so I think it's important to sort of squirrel away some money or get a good insurance policy to sort of prepare for, like Emily said, when they will likely have some sort of issue with ulcers in their life. That's the other thing I learned is that um, a lot of insurance policies will cover it. Yeah. But the horse needs a certain level of ulcer in order. And they must be scoped. Yes. I had a very crabby horse that did not like to be touched or groomed or blanketed or girth tightened or anything and thought, Oh, it's gotta be ulcers. <laughs> Got him scoped and no, did not have ulcers. So it's also not always the answer, believe it or not. Yeah. If you listen to Facebook, it's always the answer. Always. But it, it definitely is not always, but something to think about and look into treatment plans. I know there are a couple of options out there, but a lot of them are quite expensive. And then after you do treat for ulcers, you often have to adjust some of the way that they get their feed. Maybe with my my particular horse, every time he was worked, we gave him a little snack of soaked alfalfa, and that just helped settle him so that he didn't have a rebound version of ulcers. Um, So that's something that you want to talk to your vet about, like, you know, how long do do we think these have been there? How long do you think it's going to take to treat them? And what is the rate of reoccurrence? And so it just gives you something to sort of expect. And And, and also to kind of prevent or preempt, like... Exactly. If he gets very nervous about shipping or going to shows, maybe you give him a tube of 
you know, ulcer treatment before you go. Yeah. To help it flaring up again. Just like, you know, taking some Tums or yeah. a Meprazole yeah, yourself. Ex- exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we sort of touched on this already, but I think this is very controversial. And I think that sellers and buyers feel incredibly serious about this in a lot of ways, but it is that sometimes turning down a horse with vices means you're missing out on a horse of a lifetime. Yes. So I will say this. I feel like, you know, there's two sides to the story. If you board your horse and your horse and they will not accept a cribber, then what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Right. That was a hurdle that we faced. We didn't get too many cribbers, but I had one that was so fancy, so lovely, just stunningly beautiful horse, great to ride, and had the toughest time selling him because most amateurs board at boarding barns, and we kept running into my boarding barn doesn't allow cribbers. It didn't matter that he didn't crib with a collar on. They just wouldn't take them. They have like a flat policy of... Yes. So it is a major hurdle. And I don't know how to get around that, you know, like yeah. there's not much you can do unless you're going to say, hey, I'll cover all the costs of replacing the fence or whatever. Now, on the other hand, there are, there are boarding barns that don't care <laughs> and won't even put I've had cribbers of my own that they wouldn't put cribbing collars on. That would annoy me because I get there and the horse be cribbing up a storm and <laughs> collars sitting right outside the door. So there are two sides to that. I will say, too, that of the horses, some of the greatest horses I've ever known have been cribbers. Yeah. And I think throughout history, some of the greatest event horses have been cribbers. Yeah, I think that's something we're going to try to touch on in a later episode is just talking to some of the the, the biggest, most well-known off-the-track thoroughbreds and, and find out a little bit more about, like, sometimes it's like that quirky thing that actually makes them such a good athlete. Yeah, I mean, so. who knows how they are related, but, you know, the same thing with stall walking or weaving, you know, can drive you nuts. But sometimes those are just great horses, and that's that's just, like, something that they do. So it's all about management as best you can and finding the facility that can deal with them. Yeah, absolutely. We combined a couple of these answers just to sort of generalize this, and we might go into another episode about this at some point, maybe speaking with a vet or somebody in the veterinary profession. The answers were... X-ray the back, X-ray the hawks. They're they're worth all the bad X-rays because they're all heart. <laughs> so, I've purchased horses without a pre-purchase. I've purchased horses off the track and from trainers, sight unseen. Again, it's risk. I have done full pre-purchase exams on horses. For me, it was always about what job do I want to do and what is sort of my threshold for maintenance, you know, uh, x-ray is just literally a snapshot in time. And sometimes it's good to know what's existing under the surface. So for my current horse is actually an appendix. He had done a lot in his life. Blasphemy. I know. (laughs) How dare I? I mean, come on. He was related to secretariat after all. Okay. LOL. He actually looks just like secretariat (laughs) too. But you know, he was 14 and he had, competed up through prelim and, but hadn't really had any maintenance. And so for me, my limited knowledge of quarter horses, I reached out to a friend who knew them really, really well. And she said, 
as a baseline, do his front feet and his hocks. And that's all that I did during that pre-purchase. But for me, it was ask people around me that know. And when I sold my big thoroughbred, I x-rayed him nose to tail because I wanted to have that information available as a baseline for any potential buyer. He was not inexpensive and I wanted to make sure he was represented to the best of my ability. I think it's a little case by case, but I think if it's going to make you feel like you can sleep at night, x-ray the whole damn horse. (laughs) Yeah, this is a hot button issue for sure. Especially when we start talking about backs and now necks. Right. It seems like it's always trending a little differently over the years. Yeah, it definitely starts trending differently. I would say in my personal experience of the horses that I vetted and I x-rayed, I already knew there was an issue. Yeah. So you're just trying to, it's like a fact finding. So I'm well, so I was sort of proving to myself that I shouldn't buy the horse because guess what? There was an issue there and I sort of already knew it. Yeah. But a lot can be hidden in like deflections and that kind of stuff. So you have to really. And and I'm not the average buyer as as well. Uh, I was just kind of reflecting on that personally. Or if I didn't x-ray it and then found there was an issue down the road, sometimes I was like, gosh, I was thinking about x-raying that. I really should have. Well, hindsight 2020. But yeah, I think it's, for me, definitely a case-by-case basis. However, I will say that with the current environment that is going on, it has made resale very difficult for horses that have imperfect x-rays. Yeah. Particularly in the back. Yeah. I think as more and more research gets done into this, we'll find that that may change. Just the sheer number of horses and off-track thoroughbreds that will x-ray with close vertebrae or touching vertebrae in their back. But if it's not clinically bothering them, it doesn't matter. And as Neve said, I think that's a future episode where we get a real expert. Yeah. Maybe a couple of them. <laughs> like maybe a couple what? of they them. They all don't agree either. Exactly. You know? Yep. A lot of them don't agree. Um, and then there's also the issue of if the feet are balanced, does the back get better? Yeah. So all of that plays in. You really have to look at the horse the big as picture. a whole and the yeah. big picture and know what you're looking for. I will also say, ding, 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 if you're looking for saving some money, if you're willing to purchase a horse that has some x-ray imperfections that you know that you can deal with for the level that you are going to be looking to do, you can get a really nice horse at a big discount. Because it has a track history of being good at its job for a certain amount of time and has been sound and maintenance free and et cetera, et cetera. Again, like kind of knowing how to ask the right questions. Another thing I'll just kind of chime in here and say is that like, and we're going to get into this in another episode, but when you look at a horse's race record, for example, say you're buying a horse right off the track and there's a big break in the record, that's your opportunity to ask the trainer and hope that they're going to give you a response candidly on like what might've happened. Why did the horse have a break? Sometimes the horse doesn't have the right conditions to run on the track, but more often than not, maybe they had a little soft tissue, something here, or maybe the horse just was a little, just trying not as hard as they thought it could. And so they just gave it some time, but they might be able to tell you something like, Oh yeah, I came in a little sore on his left, whatever. And then you go, Hmm. All right. Well, I'm definitely going to x-ray that. Because right. you're getting a little bit of information and maybe they 
just thought that time off would fix it and the horse went back to race and the horse was totally comfortable and like whatever. But that's a little bit of like a, it's a little hint that like maybe, yeah. maybe look into that a little bit more. Yeah. And you can also, and we'll get into this later, but look up the race records and see what happened in that race. Yeah. You so, get a little more detail in the chart and find out if yeah. was, was there an issue. You know? Not always. Not always, but, but sometimes. But sometimes you can look at that and kind of put the pieces together and then sort of decide if you want to proceed if you want to do a full pre-purchase with x-rays and what x-rays you want to yeah. do at that point. I think the next answer is kind of funny, but it's to to not get scared off by people who dislike them. And maybe it's because I'm surrounded by people who absolutely adore them. But I have certainly been in situations where people are like, you own an off-the-track thoroughbred? Oh my god, you know? Like, oh, how fast does it go? Or is it wild? Or, you know, and, and right. it just kind of makes me roll my eyes a little bit and and giggle because they've given me everything and and then more after that really so yeah i think what you hit on here is a don't be scared off but also find find your people yeah even if they're not at your barn find people locally or on facebook or you know through our group so many groups yeah you know where you can you know really you know talk about the great things that off-track thoroughbreds do. And I think we touched on this earlier, but yeah, I think certain disciplines kind of turn their noses up at them because for very good reason. I mean, European warm warm bloods in particular have been bred for a very long time to do certain things, whereas racehorses are bred to run fast, (laughs) right? So that we take them from that career for what they are bred for, for, you know, however long, and are able to do so many different things with them and excel at the upper levels in every discipline really shows just the heart and character of a thoroughbred. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, I'm going to tie this into another answer that's coming up closely behind this one, but I would say that it's just incredibly important to find a trainer that knows thoroughbreds has trained them before you could have a dressage trainer who has competed in the Olympics and can't ride a circle on an <laughs> off the track thoroughbred. And I'm only saying this out of like firsthand experience. Like <laughs> it's just, you know, you can be an incredible rider and have not a lot of feel for riding a thoroughbred. And it's just going to make your life 10 times more difficult if your trainer is not able to step in and help you and guide you through the process. So I would really caution you to work with a trainer that really knows and understands them. Yeah, I think um was in a different post, but a discussion started going about how much thoroughbreds do know, but they just get asked in a different way. Yeah. So they know how to do all the things that you want them to do, basically. Right. Um, you know, maybe they don't necessarily know how to, you know, engage their hind end and come on the bit at the trot, but they probably do. And maybe they don't really know how to jump, but guess what? They're super athletic and they're going to figure it out. But they've been asked in a totally different way. So it's a little bit like a different language. Yeah, I was going to say, you need to find someone who speaks their language. Yeah, especially for the first few rides. Yeah. (laughs) Well, this sort of ties into what we just said. Is that, you know, a lot of people can make them a lot more complicated than they are. And I've dealt with this even with people that I've been you know close to throughout the last 10 or 15 years is that 
you know, you can, you can make the simple thing, the hardest thing. And, and, and for me, it's always been about taking, taking more away and just really simplifying things. And that goes for sort of all aspects of owning them. But what do you think? I was just looking this up. Isn't that the meaning of Occam's razor? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The simplest solution the simplest is, yeah. is, the, is the best solution. And yes, it's very easy to overcomplicate them. But I think that's a lot of a, a us, a we, a humankind problem, not a horse problem. Yeah. They just want their food and to go, you know, get some exercise and see their friends and make you happy. Absolutely. We talked about this a little bit a minute ago, but... A couple of people responded that to do your research on their past, their trainer and race record, and we're going to do a full episode about this down the road, but you can do some fairly basic sleuthing on your own just by learning how to read the race record, look for gaps, know which tracks can be a little bit harder on horses, and know how to read the chart that has notes about the races. And it's all free. And it's all free. So you can look up the Jockey Club number and all of that stuff is right there. You've got results. You've got their pedigree. You've got their trainer's information. I don't recommend trying to track down the phone number of a trainer unless it's been given to you by an organization. Yeah. But yeah, you can if you get if you start learning how to read that information, you'll get a fairly good baseline. It'll start giving you some information about bloodlines and consistencies that you kind of see across the board on certain types of horses. Yeah, absolutely. You want to take the next one? Uh, Yes. So do a pre-purchase exam and use it as a benchmark for what you want to do. So I think this is very interesting. I think, I think we'll have an episode down the line of, you know, two PPE or not two PPE. Yeah. And obviously we always recommend the PPE, But you have to go into it with your idea of risk and with a clear idea of what your actual goals are. You know, everybody wants an upper level prospect. (laughs) And that's great. And I understand why. But most people are competing at the lower level. But most people don't need an upper level prospect, nor do they really, really want to ride one. Yeah. So understanding that and realizing having a good relationship with your vet to say, hey, you know what? It's got a little this, it's got a little that, but it flexed really well and, you know, it was sound on pavement and it's been doing X, Y, and Z. It's in full work. You know, you want to go novice. Like, you know, I think that we can make this work. Maybe it needs a little bit of maintenance, maybe not. But just having that kind of as a baseline for the future. And using it as a tool of of like, okay, yeah, it might need a tox injected once a year. Yeah. Guess what? Most horses do. They're out competing. And the other thing that can be said, <laughs> which is sort of the, the flip side of this, is that like, and I've personally had this happen, where I knew a horse's background. It was doing the job at a couple levels higher than what I wanted it for. On paper, perfect. Love the horse. And I had access to x-rays and medical stuff. So I did a fairly straightforward PPE on it. And unfortunately, it was not actually sound at the time of the vetting. 
And one of those issues that was found during the PPE related back to a disclosure that the seller had made to me. And this was nothing against the person selling the horse or anything like that. But for me, knowing what I know, I couldn't take that risk, knowing that I might now have to go down like a little bit of a rabbit hole. So I think it's important to remember that when you do a PPE, you might get your heart broken a little bit and you might mm-hmm. have to step away from a horse that for all other reasons is perfect. So there is a flip side to that. And that is like, once you start looking like you may find something that you've already decided you're not willing to deal with. So on the other hand, being unnecessarily picky, picky yeah. on your OTTB will drain your bank account and <laughs> so make fast. so fast and make your budget so much smaller. Yeah. So that's why I think having that clear idea and picture of what you need to do, what you want to do, what your goals are, and talk to your vet about what you can deal with and what you can't before you get to the exam. Yeah. And honestly, like for all of the PPEs that we have encountered the first two questions out of the vet is always to the seller tell me the history of the horse since you've had it and to the buyer tell me what your goals are and what you'd like to do with the horse and any good vet is gonna take that those two pieces of information and possibly nothing that they knew about the horse at the track and use it as their basis for starting the exam you can also i think another reason to have that conversation before the exam even begins is that if the vet finds something along the way that they know is going to be a deal breaker, they can call you or, or pull you aside and say, yeah. Hey, look, and it's got exam. this. I don't think you're going to want to deal with this yeah. or here, here's your options. Do you want me to proceed? Right. Right. So that saves everybody time and might save you a little bit of money. Yeah, absolutely. I think I want to jump to goals. Okay. So we have a really interesting one here, I think, and I really love this. Um, And as someone who used to work as a reseller, it was really one of the favorite parts of my job. But what this answer was is not to set goal boxes for them until you see what job they like to do. And I think this is really important because this can also be a little heartbreaking also can be very heartbreaking and it depends on how and when you're purchasing this horse but if you are purchasing sight unseen or going to the actual track you really don't know what that horse is going to want to do it may be built and move for dressage but yet can't handle the confinement of you know yeah doesn't like the lifestyle doesn't yeah doesn't like it wants to go run and jump it might look like it'd be a great eventer, and guess what? It's terrified of ditches and terrified right. of water, or it doesn't pick its feet up, or won't be ridden out of the ring. Yeah. So, being able to get the horse home and evaluate it, and or use a resource like a, a reseller that is trusted to evaluate these horses and say, "Yep, you know what? This one would be a great fit for an amateur that wants to do like up to third level dressage." Or this one would make a great hunter derby horse. Yeah. You know, um, it's super fun. And I always loved to let the horses kind of tell me what direction they wanted to go into. Because especially as an amateur, which I am now, you know, trying to, to force the round peg into the square hole or however that yeah. goes 
it just doesn't always work. And if you have goals and the, the things that you really, really want to do in your own riding career, you need to make sure that the horse wants to do that too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So this answer was that they wish they knew more about bloodlines and possible genetic issues associated with particular bloodlines. Now, I'm going to admit here, I don't know a ton about this particular subject, but I do know that there are people that are, and we will probably look at, like, try to find somebody who actually knows a lot about this to interview on a future episode. But there are some things that have traced back to particular bloodlines. Emily, do you know anything about that? I kind of took this answer to be a little more general about bloodlines and then adding in the genetic component. Okay. I think that educating yourself about bloodlines is extremely important if you're going to be buying, especially off the internet mm-hmm. or. And if you really want to get like a good debate going, just ask people about bloodlines on one of the groups. Yeah. Stormcat. Yes or no. Neve. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've had a really couple of nice storm cats, <laughs> but people it's they, they can be extremely polarizing for people and you will get so many opinions about it. I think we should have a game show one day. Yeah. As, as an episode with like a, so. like a yes you know, or no yeah, yeah. <laughs> bloodlines um but i can look at particular pedigrees and bloodlines and formulate a picture in my mind of what i think that horse is going to look like act like move and like. move and jump like yeah. not always it's not an exact science it's not a science it's sort of like a weird thing that i you know i i think just through experience with different um lines you sort of generate a feeling like i mentioned stormcat for me i don't love a horse with a ton of stormcat in its pedigree meaning like if you see it two or three times in there yeah i would i would not say no to an otherwise fantastic horse but i would have in the back of my mind this one might be a little hotter it might be a little sharp reactive i probably wouldn't necessarily look at this for like a 70-year-old woman to do a walk-trot dressage horse. Right, or somebody who wants to ride two days a week. Having said that, there are exceptions to everything, and you always want to look at the horse in front of you, but I think it helps you, gener- you know, generate a picture in your mind of what these horses might look like and what their athletic ability might be. I do know that there are a couple of lines that are known to have certain unsoundness issues. I don't want to mention what they may be at this point. I would rather have save more of an expert for, yeah. and save that for another. But I do know that there are some lines. There that, are some metrics with that. For that sure. have some yeah. unsoundnesses related to them. But they are also lovely horses and nice movers and, yeah. you know, all that stuff. And again, so, it's all just a crapshoot, you know. It's like... A hundred percent, yeah. Like, it's just more of like... Like the summary of a like a job description. Yeah. It's like the overview. Yeah. And then you kind of get into the nitty gritty is like the overall picture of what the horse could be. And then you see what it really is in front of you. Um, this answer was that and this is a very specific answer was that they wish that the horse horses knew how to tie properly. And that's I th- interesting. I think they're referring to cross tying and because all the horses I would say all with a, you know, a little asterisk Asterisk. next to it at the track are taught to tie, single tie. They single tie in the stall. In the stall. 
So they have a wall behind them. Right. And they do tie usually on a walker, and some of them will fool around and be silly and goof around. But they they are used to that type of restriction, and they are used to being led by a single person and things like that. However, you get them home, don't think you're putting them in the barn aisle like on the cross ties with nothing behind them them. with nothing behind them. It's not going to work out great. (laughs) Now, some of them take to it almost instantly. Yeah. Some of them feel a little bit of resistance and they just stand, they stop moving their feet and they understand, they get it real quick. But if you don't set yourself up for success with that, you're going to end up with a horse who learns how to break the cross ties and will maybe make a habit of it. Yeah. They'll do it for fun. (laughs) which is not fun. Yeah, something that I could suggest here would be to start with something solid behind them. So maybe if you have a wash stall that has, you know, it's like a room, you know, and then you could put them in there. a bay, yeah. And then they learn what that kind of side-to-side feeling is. You could also do it in their stall while you're tacking them up. Most of them are tacked up in their stall tied at the track. So that and or groomed. So that might be their comfort zone in the beginning. Yeah. And if you're going to be in a in a barn, a busy barn aisle with a bunch of people coming and going like they're not used to having yeah. somebody going under the cross ties and oh. around them, passing them with another nightmare. Horse. No. Yeah. You're going to have a, a real situation. So yeah. sometimes just tying them, single tying them in a stall for maybe the first month or two and, and t- then taking the time once they've settled in and gotten into the routine and, and teaching them how to respect the cross ties. Yeah. Works out pretty well. Agreed. I'm going to jump ahead to one here and then we're going to go back to one because I think they relate. What I want to jump to is how you should have an understanding of confirmation and how that will play and what your goals are with the off-track thoroughbred um, versus what that horse's actual like past injuries are. Yeah. They said that sometimes the confirmation can cause you more hurdles with a second career than an old injury. So I think that being able to evaluate the confirmation of a horse is paramount when you are selecting an off-track thoroughbred, really really any horse. But from the experience of looking at a couple of photos and a crappy video taken, like, you know, on an angle of the horse trotting, like, on, like, a potholed wet (laughs) driveway and then choosing to purchase that horse. Yeah. You have to be able to learn the mechanics of the horse and how it should be put together and what that means. So it's, you know, I, I, I think it takes me back to Pony Club with our confirmation books and all of the ratings and all of that stuff. But you can learn a lot with online resources, different confirmation articles. I think it'd be really, really fun to have members you know submit photos and have us guess what their discipline is yeah or yeah something like that but the other part of this answer here is that evaluating confirmation versus past injuries and i think the the big thing about confirmation other than how will it move and jump is how will it hold up and what injuries are it going to be prone to you know, if it has super long pasterns, it's going to be a really springy, really pretty mover. Right. But does that predispose it to any any injuries? Right. Like maybe that's going to be harder for it to, to jump, you know, or not harder for it to jump, but it's going to create more wear and tear on the tendons of the front legs. Right. You know? And if it has an old bow, it's probably more likely to rebow it if it has confirmation yeah. that predisposes it to that. Yeah, Absolutely. 
I think also like this kind of ties into another answer, which was about how when you're looking at horses, say on a website like Cantor or a reseller's um, page, you know, the people working for particular resellers or for like places like Cantor, like they don't have a lot of time. They have limited resources when they're there. They're standing the horse up the best they can. They're often there in like not great conditions. And so, you know, they might have five, 10 minutes per horse versus like a reseller. But learning how to assess a horse's confirmation from a still photo in one of those pictures and know that like people that can be really good at hiding different things by standing the horse a certain way or trying to make it look a certain way. And and so to sort of echo what Emily is saying is that like it's it's important to know what to look for in those photos and what might be sort of being misrepresented a little bit in those photos as well. And not necessarily misrepresented, but maybe overly represented too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like if you want to be a show hunter and it show off its really long neck, well, there's a way that you can, ang- you know, a certain angle that you can photograph from that's yeah. going to make that neck look maybe a little bit longer than it might look in real life. So I sort of like to equate it to just doing some like, geometry and math in my head in terms of like the proportions of the horse and then take into account how it stood up and also uh, on that note if it's not stood up perfectly square can you sort of rearrange in your brain how the part should be (laughs) yeah and uh, you know this is kind of a funny anecdote about the two of us but like as long as we've known each other and still to this day we send each other horses almost every single day listings. We're not looking for horses, but it's like, what do you like about this one? What do you like about this one? And it hones your eye. Like you don't get any better at doing those types of things. If you don't just look at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of horses. Yes. And videos and videos, you know, the, the videos that we have bought horses from have been (laughs) bad at times, but you have to be able to hear the rhythm of the trot. Yeah. And or we've seen a horse take five steps and said, that's the horse. Let's wow. put it on the trailer. That was an exceptional one. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, if you can hear the clear rhythm, then and you can hone your ear to, you know, there's hundreds of these videos online yeah. for free. And what and what, what an uneducated person might see is maybe the horse is like tossing its head and and being a little bit wild. But if you watch the video and you just listen if you can hear for equal footfalls, that will tell you often a little bit more about the actual soundness of the horse in yes. a lot of cases. So, All right. What one is next? There is no such thing as a perfect horse. <laughs> what do you think about this, Neve? <laughs> Are you saying it because I currently have the perfect horse? or <laughs> Nope. <laughs> You know, I think there there just isn't, you know, my perfect horse that I have right now. He is by far the most perfect animal that I've ever wanted. But, you know, he is spooky about silly things or he hangs his head over the door and pins his ears because he's silly or, you know, I don't know. There's just like a lot of things like that you can talk yourself out of because you're like, well, you know, it has to be gray. It has to have this. It has to have bling on it, you know. And I think a perfect horse is the one that you ride and every day you're you're like happier for it. Your 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 life feels full because that horse exists in your life. That for me is a perfect horse. Yeah. Right. 
I think for me approaching this from like the angle of buying something off the track, I used to have like this kind of strike system. <laughs> I was actually thinking about this today. Whereas if a horse had one strike against it, I would generally buy it. Yeah, that's actually a really good way to do it, I think. Because everything's going to have something wrong with it. Yeah, I think. I think so, too. But, you know, like, say, say buyers in your area don't love a certain color of horse. And this horse is that color. That might be a strike. But it's sound. It doesn't have any vices. It's a good size. It's either a mare or a gelding, whichever you prefer. You know, all of those are the positives. But, you know, it's got this one kind of, like, trivial thing against it. I think you still buy it. Yeah. And that's why I think... You need to kind of go into it like that. Now, say it was that color, but it also was smaller than the typical buyer in your area would go for. Then it had to be exceptional in other areas. It's got to have an exceptional brain. It's got to be an exceptional mover. It's got an exceptional pedigree, etc. It has to kind of balance out that strike. If it had three strikes against it, it would be a no. Yeah. But two strikes was always a maybe, and one was like a given. Yeah. Something's going to have one strike. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there, there's also no perfect horse for everybody. So going into it with this visual picture in your mind, I think, really does not set you up for success. And that's <laughs> set you up for driving a lot of people crazy along the way. I want to talk about this this answer to this question, which is that they can be bargain bin show horses. I think the story of how I got my horse now is really special because if it wasn't for my last thoroughbred, the horse that I have now would not be in my life. And if I had one singular piece of advice for anybody on a budget who looks around and sees people with really expensive horses and wonders like, I'm never going to have that. Like everybody seems like they're just going out and buying these really expensive horses is that sometimes playing the long game is the way to find your way to that experience. Like, you know, if you get a, a nice thoroughbred off the track, get a good trainer and put some quality time and money into getting that horse trained, you might have a horse that nobody could afford three or four years down the road. I was lucky with my last horse to reach out. I did a lot of the training myself under the guidance of Emily. And then I reached out to a professional once he got a little bit more opinionated and I got a record on him with a pro. And then I got a record on him with an amateur and I wanted to create a lot of value in the horse so that he could potentially be my show horse. Now, at the end of the day, I just kind of wanted something smaller. I know. Can you believe it? <laughs> and, you know, he was the fanciest thoroughbred I've, I've ever sat on and taught me an, an awful lot. But at the end of the day, like I did, I sort of like paid for a really expensive horse on layaway by spending my time with a horse that just needed training and just needed time. So if you have a little bit of patience and a little bit of imagination, it's it, I highly recommend that way to go. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to combine a couple here. One of these says that brakes and steering aren't always fully installed. <laughs> we have some good stories about that. And then the second one is that they only know how to go in one direction. Actually, I'm going to add a third one to this. <laughs> okay. That getting on is sometimes the hardest part. Woof. 
(laughs) (laughs) So these three, they only know how to go one direction. Getting on is sometimes the hardest part. And brakes and steering aren't always fully installed. This goes back to speaking their language. So if the horse has been in a race, that means that riders can get on it, that it can be ridden, that it has gone onto a track with horses going in all different directions with tractors and harrows and all sorts of stuff, water trucks, you know, horses galloping past it while it's walking, all of these different things it has done. However, it has been gotten on while it's moving and a rider getting, you know, chucked up on top of it. So when you decide that you bring it home and you're going to park it at the mounting block and climb on and maybe hit, hit its butt with your foot <laughs> in midair. Don't be shocked don't when they be don't shocked love it. When all of a sudden it takes off and you don't have any brakes or steering. <laughs> right, right. I know there's a couple different here. Brakes and steering are different. They are not taught to... They are taught that when you pull back, that means to go faster. So like we were talking about the language, how it's opposite. Totally counterintuitive to the regular rider who thinks they pull back and the horse is going to stop. Um, and then what was the last one here? Oh, they only know how to go in one direction. This is interesting because they, they do know how to go in both directions. They train one way and they race in another. And if your horse is raced, it has gone in both directions. Now, I do find that like all horses, they're a little one-sided. Thoroughbreds can be a little one-sided, but I generally found it to be about 50-50 in terms of which one's more right-handed versus left-handed. They do know how to pick up both leads. And do a change. And do a change. You just need to know how to ask them. And this is actually kind of a, a funny thing to contribute to this conversation, which is that I didn't realize until I was a couple of horses in and many, many working student horses in is that I personally am extremely one-sided and I have a very difficult time balancing and riding a horse that is weaker on its right side. So it seems like a weird thing or like a weird thing to ask a, a, a seller, but I literally would ask sellers like, is this horse more right or left sided? Because I needed to know because I knew it was going to be a frustrating part of the training process for me when I was looking for a horse of my own. So absolutely. Yeah. And then I think we could probably wrap up. I think the last one is the, the best last one. one is the best one. Yeah. That there's just a lot of luck involved. A hundred percent. And there's no 100% with these horses. Like they can be easy keepers. They can be, not easy keepers, they can be anxious, they can be calm, but there is a process that if you follow for most of them, you'll end up with as successful as you can be. Yeah, and they'll just give you back everything that you give to them. They're just really incredible, thoughtful, intelligent, kind, and generous creatures, and I'm not really sure if I'll ever own another horse as special as some of the thoroughbreds that I've had, but yeah. So I hope you guys enjoyed listening to us go through some of your answers. We're going to follow this up probably in a couple of episodes with sort of the reverse question of the one that we just asked you. Reach out to us and let us know what you'd love to hear on the podcast. And if there's a specific issue or problem that you're having 
with your horse or a horse that you're looking at to buy, just send us a message or drop it in the comments on the Facebook group at OTTB Market. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you.